Welcome to the SCG Church Podcast. We'd love to have you join us for our weekend services in person in our West Auditorium. You can also tune into our service live online at scgchurch.org or live on our Facebook and YouTube pages. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning. How many feel that song kind of took you back? Yeah. How many of you have never, ever heard it before? Yeah, a whole lot of folks. That's okay. That's all right. You know, it's interesting. Um, uh, the church has been, uh, and people uh, being the church over the centuries, have, have uh, dealt with so many things and so many things similarly in each, each season. Uh, they find ways to remind themselves that God is present and that God cares. And singing is one of the ways, whether some of the earliest hymns found in Scripture from very early on in the church right up through some of the songs, that new song we sang today. I really like that one. And uh, so that's a part of why we come together is to be reminded that God loves us and that he is with us and walking with it. And so today I hope that you feel embraced by his presence and encouraged by uh, his plan for your life. So we've been in this series. It's the last of the series, and it's about stopping points. And we were using this imagery that God has on a journey and that, um, that at so many times we have opportunities to get off that journey and take our own journey and it's foolish to do so. And, uh, and so the series kind of was born out of uh, some of us in leadership just sitting around talking about some of our friends who over the years looked like they were on a faith journey and we can't find them anymore. They're not around or we can find them and they're not in church and they're just following a different path. And why is that? Why would they do that? And what, what kind of started them off in the wrong trajectory there? And uh, so we decided we'd identify some of those things. And uh, we've talked about those the last few weeks. Today, I just want to um, maybe summarize a little bit and uh, remind you of some of the things, maybe a couple of new thoughts as well. Uh, but first, I, wanna t- I want you to turn to someone and tell them uh, the person that you know that uh, lives well, a person that you know that lives well, So it's a tough question because you have no idea what I mean by lives well, right? So you have to define living well. So as you were thinking about that, and if you didn't come up with anybody, it's okay. I didn't either. Uh, But um, here is the process, though. How how do I know a person lives well? What what, what does it mean to live well? And so you might have someone who lives comfortably uh, because they have great wealth. Uh, someone who uh, lives intellectually uh, 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 rich life because they're always reading and studying and pursuing uh, information. Maybe somebody who's relationally lives well because their kids, uh, uh, you know, and them get along well or they get along well with their siblings, whatever it might be. Live well. Um, Connie and I were uh, talking about some folks that we had uh, had kind of come in contact with not long ago, and not part of the church or anything. Just just some folks, and and it was pretty quickly apparent because they told us that life was not going well. Their their life was a mess, and uh, and and it it was so interesting because sometimes you can see other people's issues better than you see your own, right? Okay, always you can see other people's issues better than you see your own. That's uh, because you don't really want to look at your own. Let's be honest about it, but. The reality is, is when we looked at this, this, these people's life, we just went, wow, it's so obvious. It's so obvious what kind of put them in this spot and how they got there. And, and during our lunch conversation, I, I just kind of realized that not many people know how to live well, and that living well is an acquired skill, and that not many people realize it's a skill, much less pursue the acquisition of that skill. 
In other words, we believe that we live in a world that will just somehow, through our family of origins, through our schooling, through the society we live in, will just inculcate us with all the tools we need to live a good life. If we just follow what everybody else does, we'll just we'll go to college, we'll get a job, we'll do what we're going to do. It's just going to turn out well. It rarely turns out well, unless people are more intentional. So I was thinking about, what does it mean to live well? And so I, I came up with this idea. I think that this, this journey God has us on, this path to become more like Jesus and, and eventually lead us home to heaven, I think it is to, the goal is to live a blessed life. Now, a few years ago, this thing started happening called hashtag blessed, and then there are always photographs that didn't look like God ordained any of them or was pleased by most of them. Uh, and yet, what would it be like to live a life that you really could... I, I'm living a blessed life. Because we, here's, what, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean to be lucky, to be fortunate. To, it doesn't mean any of those things. I think what it means is there's some, and this is my own definition. You could take it or leave it, but I'm the one talking, so you probably should take it. So it, to live a life that has some evidence of divine favor. Now, don't jump to conclusions. That doesn't mean circumstances are great. The Apostle Paul, I believe, was stamped with God's divine favor, even in prison facing death. <laughs> so it's something more. It's something deeper. The blessed life is beyond happiness. It's beyond good circumstances, great situation. There is something about, there's something of depth, something of meaning, something of purpose. Something is happening of significance in my life that can only be of God. I think that is a goal for all of us, not just the religious leaders or the super holy ones. It's for all of us. I think all of us are called to have that kind of experience in life. And so the blessed life. So I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you some things. The first one is, what, what are the objectives we should be doing? And, and the first one is um, a life that is blessed. So a life, a certain kind of life, a life that is blessed. Here's what it says in Luke 11. Interesting, Jesus is teaching about some really intense stuff. And it's really, what he's saying is really good. And some lady gets all excited and she yells out this. I don't know, this is like a Middle Eastern thing or something. I don't know what it is, but it's interesting. Uh, it's kind of a, an ancient version of your mama. All right, so, <laughs> but in a good way. Uh, as Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. I've never had that in any of my sermons. No one's ever yelled that out. It's interesting. Jesus replied, blessed rather. So, so she's trying to compliment him in, in an interesting way. Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. You want a blessed life? There's a clue. Now, there are other clues, by the way, Beatitudes, other things. But this is the starting place. Hearing God's word and obeying it is one of the ways, one of the primary ways we come to live a blessed life. And so I think on this journey, we need to just set it out that I want to live a blessed life. That is my goal. I, I, whether I acquire things, don't acquire things, whether I ever get famous, don't get famous, hopefully not famous. I think it's a curse. I've said that many times. I just want to remind you. Uh, but I want to live a blessed life, one that there's evidence that God is involved in my life and is working in and through my life. 
So that's the first one, a life that is blessed. Uh, the second one is, uh, so if that's the life I want, then I have to recognize the challenges. There are challenges. We live in a fallen world. That means that the world is not what God intended it to be. From Adam and Eve and every single one of us since then, we've taken a turn away from what God wanted. Therefore, we live in a fallen world. Therefore, the, the values and the uh, attributes that we're, we're encouraged to have in Scripture are going to be counter uh, culture, counter to the world we live in. So how do we live in this world but not of this world? In other words, how do we live in a world that has very different values than we do, and how do we reject those uh, but still be in this place uh, because we have a mission? So uh, let me just give you uh, two thoughts, living in the world but not of the world. Uh, So the first thing in this challenge is to realize it is a challenge, that there will be opposition. There are derailers everywhere. There are things that can derail us from this journey God has us on. And I want to take a, a, a parable. Each of these uh, points I'm going to make today is, a, is an interaction between Jesus and someone else. Um, this one is with Jesus and his disciples. And they're saying, Jesus, why do you always talk in parables? Why do you make it so hard to understand? And so he says, well, it's for those who have spiritual ears to hear and eyes to see. And he says, so let me just explain the last parable. And it's the parable of the soils. And it's, it's what happens when someone hears the good news and, and how their spiritual journey progresses and exactly the conversation we're having right now in this series. So let me just read for you. Matthew 13, 8 through 23. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. So that's the first one. The second one, the seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the world, they quickly fall away. Remember, we're living in a world that is in opposition to where God is trying to take us. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. So let me just kind of, I just wanted to, um, in in kind of the vein of what we've written this series about, I want to give you some examples of what each of these looks like that I've seen. So the first one, it says the evil one comes. This would be Satan. One time we had a a young man come many years ago, come, not one time, many times. I could tell this story over and over again, but I'm picking one person. And this person was super verbal, super gregarious, a leader in so many ways, successful. Came and uh, was struggling with addiction. And uh, we helped them. We as a a church family helped, uh, helped them get sober get on track. And he was doing so well. He's doing so well. And we were so excited. And, uh, and, but one day, uh, we kind of noticed something weird, something, and and it just started more and more. We just started noticing things. Long story short, it wasn't long till the addiction was in full control once again. And this person who I was personal friends with and, and, and had invested greatly in, um, today, uh, is no longer a leader in business, uh, no longer uh, going to church that I know of, or uh, is fully engaged in the addiction and bitter and angry at the world. So here's the first thing we need to realize. We live in a world that there is, there is a, a force 
uh, a person in personalities called Satan that is against you. So just don't be naive. Here's what happened to my friend. He got on track. He got sober and he thought he had it wired. And he stopped being on guard against the evil that could, that could derail him. All right? So first thing we realize is that there is one who does not want you to say, well, that's kind, of, that's kind of medieval thinking. You call it what you want. Uh, if you don't think there's evil in the world, watch what's happening in Ukraine and a number of other places in the world for that matter. There is evil in the world. Let's not be naive, okay? So first of all, let's be aware that there is evil in the world. Second, th- second one is, uh, it says it takes no root. And, I, and I, if the first one's about Satan attacking you or whatever, it, this one is about shallowness. The shallowness of our culture and the shallowness of, uh, of us as individuals. <clears throat> I had a friend that I met um, and over a period of time, they found out what I did and, uh, and they showed up here. And he started showing up here, and they were here pretty regularly. And then I just didn't see him anymore. I said, what, what in the world happened? I thought, I thought they were making progress. I call these uh, cultural Christians. These are people who take, I, and I believe this is true of all Americans, that we are pretty shallow people. And we tend to think of the ancients as being simple and not well-educated, but they were better read than most of us. Many of them were. And they were deeper thinkers. We are shallow. We want to be spoon-fed. We turn on a talk radio in the morning so we can be spoon-fed something we like to hear. You want to come to church, I'm going to spoon-feed you how to, how to do your Christianity. But that's not what it's really about. How, how would it be if I said to someone, could you just spoon-feed me how to love my wife? Well, that would be stupid, right? The only way to love my wife is to be in a relationship with my wife, to know her, to have lunch together, and to work side by side, and, and to contribute to her life. And let her contribute. That's how you know someone. You can't be spoon-fed Christianity any more than you can be spoon-fed how to live your life. You have to learn it. You have to go deeper. You have to come to grips with issues. Here, did you know that? And you're saying, well, is this really a big deal? I was reading an author this week, and he was talking about people who come into the church, and it's just a nice thing they add on. It's good. I'll go on the weekends. It's nice. It's good. Whatever. And a shallow kind of concept. Here's what happened at COVID. 50% of, of people who attended church before COVID do not attend church now in America. 50%. What happened? Cultural Christians. When it said, what does it say about the shallowness? It says this. The, uh, when trouble or persecution comes, just even the trouble of getting up and getting back to church, if you're just shallow, you don't understand the, the, the depth of what it means to have a relationship with God. Not only the privileges offered you, but the responsibilities and opportunities that come with that. I believe we live in an incredibly shallow age and that we, if we don't intentionally choose to be different, we will be shallow people. By the way, I, this, this came to me. I don't know if it's a good illustration. Now you tell me. There's a place in, in, in New Mexico called Elephant Butte. My family calls it Elephant Butt because it's ugly. <clears throat> and there's a big lake there. Like one whole side of this huge lake is owned by Ted Turner, I think. But the other side, you can camp and you can go on the lake. And we were on that lake one day, and, and my dad loves to fish, and I hate fishing more than just about anything else, except for fly fishing. I kind of liked it. That's kind of fun. But everything else, uh, we're out on the lake, and it's a, big, it's a pretty big lake. And the wind comes up, and storms start coming in, and I think, well, maybe we should head back. But by the time we got that little boat turned around and headed back toward the campsite, it was, it was just, I didn't know if we were going to make it or not. We're coming out of the water. It's crazy, because a shallow lake gets stirred up really easy. 
Have you thought about our politics? Do you understand how incredibly easy it is to manipulate the American public? Because a shallow lake... One of the points I probably won't get to today, but there have been, there is a tradition among Christian writers and thinkers for the centuries that we as Christians are to be the least stir upable. That's not the word they used. <laughs> that we're to be a non anxious presence. When everybody else is getting all crazy because the sky is falling, we've already rooted ourselves in the love of God in the promises in his word, in this ongoing relationship with God and with each other. And we're not only rooted, but our roots are intertwined with each other. And we can stand strong in the craziest of times. But that's not what I see in the modern church in the West. And it worries me. And it worries me about my own life, how easily I can be excited, excitable, stir-upable. So far, you're not having much fun, are you? It's Okay. It'll get worse. <laughs> the third one is this. It says, the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word. Worries and wealth. When we first started the church, right at the very beginning, there was a man, who, a young man who came in, was my age, and I immediately liked him. I immediately liked him. He was a smart aleck, just like me. And I just really liked him. And he could give as good as he got. And we just became fast friends. What surprised me was when uh, a few years later, um, he was done. He was out and we never even talked anymore. He didn't come to church. And he had decided that maybe building his own company. He was a great businessman. Wrote it. He could read a spreadsheet faster than anybody I've ever met in my life. Building his company, building his wealth, and keeping up with all the, all of the other friends of his that were doing that became more important than God or than our friendship or than going to church. And he was gone. And he's never come back. And it, it, so you think pastors, like, we're just, you know, it's all good. It's not good. It's painful. It's really painful. When people you care about, people you invest disappear. So... When we look at these, you know, a direct attack of the evil one, just the shallowness of the, the tendencies that we have, and, and just getting caught up in the worries of life. Here's Jesus telling this parable and explaining it, but here's my question for you at the end. Why does he tell this parable? Because he says there's one more group. It's a group with good soil, and those who are, are good soil, they reap a harvest, they produce a crop. That means a spiritual influence of 100, 60, 30 times uh, where they started. So here's the question. Why did Jesus tell this parable? It's possible, and I think this is part of it, it's possible that he's working with these young Christian leaders who are gonna be the founders of the church, and he wants them to know the explanation for why some people don't make it on their spiritual journey. And that's probably part of what he's doing. But I had this thought recently, what if he's telling this parable to say, it's not predetermined what kind of soil you are, it's up to you. Would it be possible that he's telling this parable for us to, uh, to do soil amendments so that we can be in the fourth category instead of the first three? 
Is it possible that he is giving them a warning and and an insight that this is, you live in a world that these things, three out of four things are going to get you. They're going to derail you, but you don't have to give in to the other things. There is the possibility that you could remain good soil. You see, I think there is this life that is blessed. And yes, there is this life that is challenged, but we can overcome the challenge. Third thing I want to talk about is not just the life and the challenge, but the thing, the thing. Because whether you're identified with one of those three or not, I suggest to you that we all have a thing, maybe two or three things that can get us. Here's what it sounds like in Luke 18, 18. A certain ruler asked him, talking to Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know, So the teacher's kind of thrown a little parry at his way, and he's kind of, or a little, little lob in there, a little shot, and, and Jesus throws a little lob back, and then he does something that I love. So he goes on and says, no one's good except God alone. You know, the, the commandments, do not commit adultery, not murder, not steal, not give false testimony, honor your father. All these I've kept since I was a boy, he said. And here's where Jesus always does. I love, uh, it scares me a little bit, but I love when Jesus interacts with someone. He doesn't keep it up here. He just goes, zap, right to their heart. It's just like, oh, you want to talk nonsense? Bing. I'm just going to, I'm going to call it out right now. I'm just going to call you out right here. But he does it redemptively. So listen, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Yeah, you've done all this stuff. You kept all the rules. You still lack one thing. And here it is. And and by the way, he's not saying everybody lacks the same thing. He's saying that everybody lacks something. Everybody has one thing that could derail them. Everybody has one idol that can, that can, on a given day, given the opportunity, will bring about a coup, will overthrow the king of your life, who is God, and take over your affections. As we said, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. He wasn't sad because he was wealthy. He was sad because he wouldn't give up his wealth. He was sad because there was something more important to him than God. We all have things in our life that vie for on a given day in a given moment would try to usurp the throne of our lives. There's all kinds of things. Um, it, may be, it, it may be materialism. It may be the desire for wealth. It might be fear. You know, I, I was just talking to someone last night and they said, you know, when you said fear, I was just thinking fear and, and it's an older person and, and it's just difficult for them right now. Having lost a spouse, just the fear is overwhelming. It might be fear. It might be bitterness or anger. It might be that you were a victim as a child and you just can't get past that. Anything that becomes more important than God and his promises to us is an idol. This whole series has been about, about idolatry. Anything that climbs to the first place, I've, here's what our relationship with God is to look like. So I was, uh, I, I have a little granddaughter. I don't know if you know that or not. She's uh, three months old and she's the cutest baby in the world. I'm sorry about your kids, but um, she's the, I mean, they may be like third or fourth cutest. She is the cutest in the world. And she loves her papa as she should. And, um, and so I'm holding the other day and uh, her mom was doing something and dad were doing something there at a meeting here at the office. And so um, I, I held her and, and, and uh, my son Cody was there and, and Amy was there and they were working and I was intruding and I get to do that because I'm the boss. And so I walked in with, with the most beautiful baby in the world. And, uh, and so Amy starts talking to, to Noel and Noel just, and but then Amy stopped to do something on her computer and you should have seen the look on Noel's face. It was like, excuse me? Did, did you forget? I'm here. Did, did, 
She was looking like, why are you not adoring me right now? That's what people do. They adore me. What, what is your problem? And then Amy stopped and looked back and she smiled again. Everything was good. Now, God is a little like that. Not a spoiled baby who uh, needs us to look at him all the time. It's actually the opposite. It's more like the issue with Peter that we need to be looking at him all the time. Remember if Peter started walking on the water, he took his eyes off, Jesus started to sink. That's how our life is. The minute we start to look to something else for our joy, our satisfaction, our meaning, our fulfillment, our security, the minute we look at something else, it's idolatry. And you're taking a turn right off the, the path of what God has for you. The minute you do that, we need to be aware of that and, and know what. So a number of years ago, uh, uh, the board, our elder board, we have an elder board that, that helps guide the church and uh, mostly helps keep us uh, out of trouble because, you know, I have crazy ideas sometimes. And um, so we sat down and we identified the five things that could derail us as a church. Five things that we just want to be super, and, and we set in place um, uh, guardrails. We set in place, um, um, for example, in the finances, audits and all kinds of stuff. I can't even, I don't even know where the books are. If we have books, I don't know. But uh, we have computers somewhere, I guess. But uh, those are overseen by other people, and we have annual audits. And for me personally, one of the, we, if I failed morally, that would derail our church possibly. And so those guys are on my case, which they've threatened to kill me if I mess up, which is no big deal because my wife has already promised that out of my kids. And so they're going to have to get in line. But, and so we've kind of identified the five major things that could derail us. I'm sure there are others we haven't thought of, but these are the things we've seen over the history of the the churches. And and we just put in place guardrails and systems to help us not fall into those things, right? It makes sense, right? So let me ask you, what are the five things you've put guardrails in? What are the five things that are most possibly the greatest threat to your spiritual journey? And why haven't you identified them if you haven't? If it's important for an organization, wouldn't it be important for you? Wouldn't it be important for you to sit down and think, you know what, this is one of the things that I struggle with a lot. And in a weak moment, in an unguarded moment, that could get me. That could derail me. It might be, it might be lust. It, it might be bitterness or anger. It might be uh, greed. It might be a number. And by the way, you might not just have one. You only have several. But pick the top five. And here's why. Uh, my friend who, who uh, overcame addiction and fell back into it, he began to believe that he ha- didn't have to live every day on guard against that. He began to believe that he was above that and beyond that, and he wasn't. The truth is, I get up every day. I don't live in fear, but I know what mine are. I know what they are. And you know why I need to know that? Because the minute that thought comes in, I'm going, nope. The Bible says, take capture. It says, capture. Take captive every thought. Is this of God or is this one of those derailers? Oh, this is a derailer. That's out of here. And so you, you short circuit it before it takes root. Men, if you're looking at something you shouldn't be looking at, the minute you think about looking at that, God, I need your help because that's one of the things that could derail me. could derail my spiritual journey. could derail my marriage, me as a father. That, I'm, I'm, mm. Matter of fact, I'm taking that app off my phone right? And so and it's not a heavy thing. It's not a legalistic thing. It is a thing where we engage uh, with God and experience his help so that we don't let that one thing on that one day in that one moment make a long-term derailment in our lives. Um, Saying no to wrong things is important. Let me just uh, read a passage in Titus 2.11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no 
You see, when I realize what those things are in my life that can derail me, I can say no in advance. I don't have to say no. I used to teach teenagers all the time. The time to say no is not when you're in the backseat of the car. It's before you leave for the date. You say no in advance. I'm not going there. It's not when you're doing your taxes. It's when you decide to let God be in charge of all your money. It's not when you're on a business trip and somebody in the restaurant kind of makes eyes with you. Honey, I need to talk to you. Um, (laughs) You've already decided. It's already predetermined to say no. The rest of that passage goes on. And it says this. Say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Um, So know what the things are for you. Know what the things that could derail you so that you can stay on that journey with God. So there's the blessed life you want to live. There's the challenges of that life. There's the thing that could derail you. But here's the funnest one, I think, that helps to stay on the journey. As I was thinking about what it is that um, helps uh, encourage me to stay on the journey with God. And it's the point, the point of life. Here's what it says in Mark 9:35. They came to Capernaum, which I was just at a couple of weeks ago, by the way. When he was in the house, he asked them, this is Jesus talking to his disciples. Um, what were you arguing about on the road? Uh, but they kept quiet because in the way they'd argued about who was the greatest. They were always arguing about who was the greatest. Talk about missing the point. Um, and sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Here's my, here's my bottom line on this. You want to stay on the journey God has, you want to realize that your life is about more than your life. Your life is about more than your comfort, more than your security, more than your pleasure, and more than your enjoyment. Your life was intended to have an impact. And when you begin to see yourself as a servant of a greater purpose, of God's purpose, of God's redemptive purposes on the earth, when you begin to see your life as more than just your urges, you will begin to be willing to make sacrifices to stay on the right path. The reality is, is we begin to see ourselves as servants, servants of God, servants to our spouses, our children, our church, our community. When we begin to see that, it makes whatever sacrifice is necessary, it makes sense, and we're willing to do that. How do we do that? How do we serve our spouses? Let me just give you some real quick, just so you have something practical to take home if you didn't get anything else out of this today. Um, Commit to loving your spouse. Not if, not when, and not because. Period. Just, I love you. I will always love you. Now, your spouse, the reality is your spouse may say, I'm done with you, and that's a chance you're going to have to take. But even if my spouse says, I'm done with you, I am still going to commit to love her. I just am, because that's how God... Matter of fact, did you know that the Bible says that men were to love our wives as Christ loved the church? He never stopped loving the church. He never gave up on the church. Uh, So, I know, we live in a world that says men and women are the same, the needs are the same. That's baloney. So, men and women are different. They are different. So, one of the things I read earlier, and it made sense to me, and you can agree, disagree, um, uh, but... One of the number one needs that one of the, when I first got married, I was doing research on how to be a good husband, how to do this, was that one of the number one needs a woman has is security. Now, see, I need respect. I need my wife to, you know, kind of at least tell me I'm special, even if she doesn't really believe that. What does my wife need? Security. I never want my wife to ever, ever be insecure in this relationship. 
Because remember that story of the soils? It's not just true spiritually, it's true relationally. If my wife is ever going to blossom into all that God intends her to be, she needs to be planted in a good soil relationally. And it's my job to amend that soil. I can't fix her. I can't change her. I'm not supposed to, but I can create an environment. I can amend the soil of our relationship so that she is free to grow and become. That's why we've never, ever had a fight. I didn't say it was easy. I just said it's a thing you want to do. How can I serve my wife? Because by serving my wife, I'm serving God. Because God has a purpose for her life too. And for her to be free to experience that, to enjoy that, to explore that. If she has the right soil, I get to be a servant to her as I'm serving God. What about our children? Our children, they are a gift from God. All of us know they're a gift from God. We believe that. We accept that. But how do I serve my children? I realize they're a gift from God. They're only, uh, only in my care for a, a period of time. And during that time, what do I want to do? Well, the most important thing to do to serve my kids is to introduce them to my God. See, and, and I don't do that through my words because they don't really care about your words. They care about your life. And so I have to live my life so that they're seeing more than me as we're interacting and as I'm experiencing this relationship with God, they're seeing that. And yes, we talk about it. And yes, we, and that's a part of the deal. So in addition to the five things that you need to be on guard, I want you this week to sit down and write those out. I want you to write down the people you're serving and how. If you, if you worked for me and, and you ran a department here somewhere, uh, we would sit down and I'd say, uh, um, so what are your goals? What are you trying to accomplish? What, what, what do you think you need to be doing to grow this ministry to better effectively care for the people you're caring for? Would you? And we would sit down and we'd talk about it. You'd write them out. So why don't you sit down with God and say, okay, God, here's what you've given me the privilege of serving. These are the people. This is the family. This is the church. God, how is it that you want me to invest here? Bottom line is, as you are investing in God and in God's people and in God's purposes, staying on track gets a whole lot easier. It gets a whole lot easier. Because now I'm not just, I grew up in a church where I just felt like you just don't do those things. Well, now I know why I don't do those things, because it hurt. It would hurt the people I love. It would hurt the church I serve. It would hurt God himself. That's why I don't do those things. It's not just white-knuckling my way past the urges. It's I want to serve a greater purpose. My life is about something more than whatever my urges would say in a given moment, right? So, five things that could derail you. How are you serving the people in your world? That God has put you there for a reason. How are you serving them? And how could you more intentionally serve them? If we would do those things, we will be on this journey for a lifetime. And one day, arrive home and hear those incredible words, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you. I am so thankful that my life does not consist of what I can achieve, what I can acquire. Lord God, my life is not even on my own abilities or my intelligence. My life is a product of your goodness. As I submit myself to you, as I choose to obediently follow you, you are in charge of the outcomes. And Lord God, I want nothing less than the outcomes you have intended for me. I want my life to count. I want my life to matter to those that I love, those who are nearest to me and those who are not as near. But Lord God, I want to serve you and I don't want to be derailed. Lord, help us to see the potential idols in our life. 
and help us to bypass them with your help so that we can have the potential in our life, the potential impact you've intended for us. Help us to take this serious, to think deeply, to seek your face and your advice and your direction. And therefore, Lord God, live differently. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Thank you so much for being here. Have a great week. God bless. We hope you enjoyed this message. And remember, we have live services on Saturday evenings and Sunday mornings in our West Auditorium. Or you can watch live online at scgchurch.org or on our YouTube and Facebook.